the reformers believed in the in biblical authority. They believed that the Bible was their final court of appeal, their norming norm, because the Bible alone is inspired by God and therefore inerrant and sufficient and so on. But that did not mean for them that the Bible is the only authority. Rather, it's the superior authority for those reasons I mentioned. But they were very mindful to heed the authority of, say, well, church polity and ecclesiastical councils and creeds. And they even had a taxonomy for these things in which the creeds were put at the top. And from there, you worked your way down to, say, the church fathers and so on. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am not Matthew Barrett, your normal host. I am Ronnie Kurtz, Assistant Professor of Theology at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. And I have the distinct pleasure of being with your normal host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Executive Director of Credo Magazine. Dr. Barrett, like always, it is very good to be with you. Well, it's great to be with you, Ronnie. I feel like we haven't done this in a while, so it's good to join our voices on the Credo Podcast. I know. I wish I was there. I can picture exactly where you are in the recording <laughs> studio in the Virgin Library. Wish I was there with you, but it's still good to hear your voice nonetheless. Well, it's. I think that the last time we recorded together, was it on the Trinity? I think it was on the Trinity. Yeah, it's been a so, while. Yeah. And you've written, I have to boast a little bit about you, Ronnie. I mean, you've written two books, two books. <laughs> since then, and you've got yeah. a third coming out. So I'm not hosting this, but listeners, you got to go get Ronnie's books. <laughs> uh, Appreciate it. Well, hey, speaking of books, a book is bringing us back together. Your, by the time of this recording, either newly released or about to be released book with Zondervan Academic and what a book it is. I've been working through it for quite a while. I'm not quite finished. I have to be honest. I hit page just over page 800 (laughs) this week. So that means I have about 200 pages left. And so it's a bit of a mammoth of a work. But I'll tell you, it was so fun reading. One of the reasons I found it to be so fun was because it felt like all things Matthew Barrett colliding. Because if readers are familiar with your work, you know, they're going to be able to identify some themes. You obviously care about soteriology. You have books on, you know, things like monergism and et cetera. You care about Reformation theology, obviously. You care about uh, theology of the classical persuasion. And so to see a book like this, The Reformation as Renewal from Zondervan Academic, really feels like a lot of your theological interest kind of colliding together. I, I wonder, you know, I didn't plan to even ask this, but I wonder if you felt that when you were writing that it was kind of a conglomeration of all the things you've written about in the past. Yeah. You know, I would be completely thrown off by that comment, Ronnie, except for someone you know, Timothy Gatewood, approached me long before he, he read through the manuscript in, in a rough draft form, and he said almost the exact same thing. And I was thrown off at that point. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he basically explained it the way you did. And uh, the more I thought about it, I said, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I started yeah. off, you know, when Zondervan Academic asked me to write this book, I said, okay. And I just assumed well, this will be a good opportunity to write on the Reformation. But like like most books, once I started to dig into the research and just think more deeply, what does it mean? What did the Reformers think in their minds? Like, what did they think it meant to be Protestant or Reformed, perhaps? 
a whole new book emerged. And yes, it's a big one. I don't know that uh, anyone ever finishes it, <laughs> but but it's not it's not as if uh, well every chapter is on something else, and so mm-hmm. in that sense, it's a it took me on an exciting adventure, one that in many ways I didn't anticipate. But in the end, I realized uh, the more I studied the medieval period, the Reformation, the Protestant classics after them. All of what I've been doing converged, and I did feel like by the end of it, this could be twice as long, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> this could be twice as long because every I – mean, just so you know, listeners know, I had to cut over 150 pages on Calvin, and that was wow. really painful. We're, there, there are plans to do something with it moving forward in, in another book, but – it just goes to show every time I open the door, you know, Calvin and say, f- folks saying, uh, Protestants, you don't have a doctrine of participation, then Calvin popped out of that door yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. said, well, I have right. something to say. And that was my experience. And whether it was classical theism, whether it was soteriology, whether it was ecclesiology or Catholicity, it all so- suddenly converged in ways that I didn't expect, but seemed to just organically come out of the reformers themselves. Yeah, and it makes for a great read. You're right. Each chapter does kind of offer something new, and it does even read, because it's kind of a strong blend between history and theology, the narrative aspect, I found myself kind of page-flipping in a way that was like, oh, this is like a strong narrative. Like, it's just a page-turner. Even though it has dense theology, the narrative and the history of it makes it a really good read. So, yeah, I just appreciate that. So let's go ahead and jump into the content, because we have a lot to cover. In fact, we, we listeners, we hop on the phone just, you know, a couple minutes before the call, and I was supposed to cover part three of this for this particular interview, and part three includes a man named John Calvin. And you might have heard of that name before. He has written a lot, has a fairly significant legacy, and because of the sheer amount of material, we kind of made an 11th hour audible and decided to record basically on everything in part three except for Calvin, and we will make that a separate episode. So be watching for another episode between Dr. Barrett and myself where we will tackle Calvin individually. But with that being said, let's jump into the content. So the book has four major divisions. You have part one is the Reformation's Catholic context. Part two is the genesis of the Reformation. Part three is the formation of Reformed Catholicity. And part four is counter-renewal. We are going to focus our time on this episode in part three, the formation of Reformed Catholicity. You start that section off by really taking a deep dive into the Swiss Reformation. And with the Swiss Reformation, there's obviously a lot of primary material to work through, a lot of secondary material. But I want to start off by reading a quote that you use in the book from Bruce Gordon and his work, The Swiss Reformation. I want to read this quote and have you reflect on it, because I felt like it really captured, in general, the idea of the book, and in particular, this section about the Swiss Reformation. So let me read this quote from Bruce Gordon and have you reflect on it, if you don't mind. He says, "'Despite its polemic against the Roman Church,' The theological structures which emerged in the Swiss Reformation stood firmly on the tradition, the traditional teaching of the Church. This was achieved through a deliberate appropriation of the early Church and a good deal of the medieval Church. The Swiss Reformers' theology was grounded in a sense of historical continuity. So I'd love to hear you reflect on that. He gets at both the exegetical but also the historical nature of the Swiss Reformation, which I think you bring out well. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Bruce Gordon. I have, I think the first thing I need to say about Bruce Gordon is how much I've benefited from his scholarship. I think some people know Bruce Gordon because of his work on Calvin, but he actually has written earlier on, he wrote an entire book called The Swiss Reformation. And not only am I indebted to him, but uh, I was just really pleased when he said, Yeah, I will read your book. And he even offered a commendation of it in the end. And that was so meaningful to me because Bruce is such a, an expert, not just on Calvin, but the Swiss. And this is the chapter 
these chapters actually on the Swiss, again, another thing I did not anticipate was I just thought, okay, these are chapters that people will get through because they want to get to Calvin. <laughs> but I actually discovered something very different. And yes. those who have read Bruce Gordon's work know that, well, the Swiss Reformation is a Reformation in and of itself. It has a whole life of its own. And I found, I hope readers feel this way, I found that these chapters were some of the most exciting to write, some of the most lively to write as well. And so, yeah, I can't say enough about Bruce Gordon and the work he's done. But that quote you read from him, goodness, it says it all in a sense. Because I think sometimes as evangelicals in particular, we assume that the Swiss, especially when names like Zwingli come to mind, we think of the Swiss in a different, a different corner of the Reformation altogether, perhaps a more radical one. And there's reasons why that assumption has been perpetuated. But what Bruce Gordon does is he takes the Swiss and he demonstrates that, no, the Swiss too, even though their origins, the genesis of the Reformation, is somewhat different than Wittenberg in, in many ways, nonetheless, they too are standing firmly, as he says, on the traditional teaching of the church. And what he means by that is they're quite deliberate. It's not as if they are starting over, though it can appear that way, right, because of the changes they make are so significant early on. But it's not as if they are just starting completely over as they reimagine the church in their Swiss territories they actually, as Bruce Gordon says, they actually are appropriating a good deal of the medieval church. And I think yeah. that has been missed in retellings of the Swiss Reformation. There, There is a historical continuity. It, it may look slightly different than what you see in Wittenberg or Geneva or England and Scotland, for that matter. Uh, at the same time, though, and I just find this so remarkable, whether you, what, whatever territory you, you exist in during the 16th century, you still sense this continuity that all the reformers share together, which really brings up another issue. Historians have really pushed hard to say, well, we should talk about reformations, plural. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. We shouldn't paint each corner of the Reformation as if it's exactly the same as every other. Uh, at the same time, though, I don't want to push that too far, because if you do, some historians can go so far to think, well, there's just this variety that doesn't have a type of glue that binds each Reformation together. <clears throat> and that's where I think the Swiss Reformation just would disprove swinging the pendulum too far in that direction, because even though there are differences, there is a historical continuity that the Swiss find with the medieval church and even the church fathers, and that historical continuity is based on some of the same assumptions that you'll see in Wittenberg or Geneva or England or Scotland. Yeah, and that's what you just said is a really important point, and something I feel like, you know, there's a lot of literature, secondary literature on the Reformation, of course, and one of the things that's unique about this particular volume, is you are giving history, historical data about the Reformation, but it does have in view kind of this idea of Reformation as renewal, hence the title, showing um, both legitimate differences between what you just said, the Reformations, you know, plural, but yet legitimate theological continuity as well. And I thought yeah. you did a really good job showing, using primary sources to show there really were significant differences. You didn't, you did not just gloss over those. And yet, at the same time, this is a work towards the one holy apostolic church. Yeah. And so I feel like that quote and what you just said kind of directly gets at that. Let me ask another question just about Zwingli. Obviously, the Swiss Reformation is a ginormous corner of what we think of when we think of Reformation theology. You have significant figures. Zwingli's probably the figurehead there, but Bollinger, obviously for Migley, spent some time there. The Helvetic Confessions, first and second, come out of the Swiss Reformation, and so there's a lot there. You do have an entire portion on Zwingli and contemplation, which really stirred my soul. You had a line 
I wrote this down. I put, I have no question about this. I just wanted to read it because it's so good. (laughs) You say that the true contemplative living has its source in the gospel. And you say that in reflecting on Zwingli. And so let's just talk about Zwingli for a minute. I would love to hear you reflect on how Zwingli is kind of a window into, one, the Swiss Reformation in general, but then, two, kind of the broader notion of Reformed Catholicity, which is something you're obviously interested in with this book. Yeah. Well, I I really am glad that you asked about him, because I I think with Zwingli in particular, we tend to paint him, especially because he dies the way he does, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. We tend to paint Zwingli as far more radical than some of the other reformers. And it's not that there's no truth to that, but I think that if we take Zwingli's own words seriously, we do have to nuance that some. We mentioned Bruce Gordon a minute ago and some of his work on the Swiss Reformation at large, but he also has a newer biography on Zwingli himself where he essentially says Zwingli inherited from medieval Christianity, a powerful sense of orthodoxy and an utter intolerance of heresy. Now, if you just heard those words, you might associate that with a different reformer, but I think that Bruce Gordon saying that of Zwingli is important. I mean, take contemplation like you just mentioned. The reformers had much to say about contemplation as not just an aspect of theology, but even a method of theology. But contemplation is a medieval understanding of theology, one that, and not just medieval, but patristic as well. There's a long history to the way that theology really gazes at the beauty of the Lord, to you know, quote the Psalms and David, and that this is not just the beginning of theology, but even its goal. But the reason Zwing, this is so relevant to Zwingli is because, well, Zwingli is taking this understanding of contemplation, and he sees it as a door into orthodoxy, but also a fence that keeps out heresy. And I think we could even go further and say, though this isn't necessarily unique to him, and say that he also sees it as a mechanism by which the church is focused, by which the Mm -hmm. church can then, I mean, you mentioned a minute ago that quote where I say it really, for Zwingli, comes back to the gospel. And that's so true because contemplation for Zwingli is only possible because God has let the ladder down from heaven, and that ladder is Christ. Unless, apart from the incarnation, Zwingli doesn't see a way by which we as sinners could be reconciled to God and therefore contemplate God in the Christian life with a emphasis, Zwingli often is known for this emphasis, on the Holy Spirit and holiness itself. For Zwingli, his ecclesiology in many ways depends on that type of contemplative holiness. It defines him personally, but it also defines what he sees as the mission of the church, even the culture of the church at large, which can make people uncomfortable because here there's going to be differences between how aggressive Zwingli wants to be with reform in comparison to someone like Luther. The other thing I'll mention is if if this is correct, then it does put Zwingli's theology as well into proper perspective. Just to give an example here, Zwingli's ecclesiology in many ways it is built on his theology proper. And so, and this isn't unique to me, I mean, many other scholars have pointed this out, when you look at Zwingli and the doctrine of God, or Zwingli and the image of God, or Zwingli and the clarity of Scripture, what you begin to notice is that it's every, everything's connected for him. And so it's not surprising that Zwingli will have a very strong emphasis on, say, God's simplicity, because contemplation for Zwingli means adherence to orthodoxy, and he could not imagine a Christian understanding of God apart from simplicity. And then as he moves forward to, say, the image of God, here, too, he will define who we are in in that creator, the context of a creator-creature distinction. So he's he may not use all or every scholastic term 
or all of its vocabulary, but he's operating within its parameters, which means that whether he's talking about Scripture, the image of God, or the attributes of God, he is, as Gordon mentioned, he is deliberate, he's intentional, he's self-consciously drawing on that Catholic tradition before him to, because, and this is the critical point, as Zwingli is put in a position to reimagine what the church might look like in Zurich, he does not see the church in a radical way, but sees the church that he is leading as a church that really is meant to exist in continuity with the past. And I think that has been lost at points. So Mm. that whether he's writing a confession and trying to persuade those who may not be of the same mindset as him, whether he is reflecting on the doctrine of God or the image of God, in all, or whether he's actually putting forth a, a program, a liturgy for the church, in all of these ways, he is, he is self-consciously Catholic, though he's not Roman, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what you draw out, and kind of even what that Gordon quote is getting at. And, you know, you follow up Zwingli in this chapter with a pretty long reflection as well on folks like Bullinger and even William Perkins, and it feels a little bit like a crime that we don't get to spend like an entire episode on figures as amazing <laughs> as William Perkins. Uh, but I do want to move us into the next chapter after that bit on Zwingli, uh, into chapter 13 of the book. Uh, ch- chapter 13 is a lot of ground that you cover. So it's called Abandoning Catholicity for Primitive Christianity where you focus on radicals and revolutionaries. And there are a number of figures that you work through the primary sources, you bring them into conversation with one another, and the group that comes into focus here is the Radical Reformation, or the Anabaptist. And like the Reformation, there's a real sense in which we can say something like the Radical Reformations because there were some legitimate differences that you bring out. I mean, you cover figures as broad as, you know, Blaurock and Sattler and Menno Simons and Graubold from Munzer to Hubmeyer. I mean, there's a lot of names in here. And one of the things that I thought was helpful as a reader is both the emphasis on the unity of the Radical Reformation or Radical Reformations, and the insistence that both Rome and the anti-Rome did not go far enough with the Reformation, that there was a dissatisfactory feeling towards the Reformers and the Radical Reformers, and yet also there's some differences between them. And you have obviously, you know, really violent Radical Reformers, which lead to things like Munster and the slaughtering that happened there. Mm. And yet you also have people like Minos Simons, who was very different from that persuasion. And so given the diversity of what you bring about in this chapter, really I want to summarize it, even just for the sake of us readers, I want to ask kind of a summary question, which is, what's your primary hope out of the chapter? So if if you were trying to communicate something about the Radical Reformers, especially as it relates to the thesis of this book. What are you hoping readers get out of this treatment of the Radical Reformers? Well, this was perhaps one of the most difficult chapters to write, in in large part because it, it could only be one chapter. And yeah. you're right. I mean, even the way you just set it up, Ronnie, it is diverse. I mean, we talk about the Radical Movement, but it depends what corner we are referring to because some of them were pacifist, some of them were revolutionary, and some of them are more tied to the texts of Scripture, others less so. Some of them don't abandon tradition altogether, though there is still suspicion, But and then some of them not only abandon tradition but elevate themselves and the Holy Spirit in a way that, you know, dispenses with tradition altogether. And so it is diverse, which made it enjoyable, but all the more difficult to capture the spirit of it. I think that, you know, in terms of approaching the chapter, I would say, even though there's diversity, I think that historians are justified in referring, in using that word radical. And there's various Mm -hmm. reasons why. And I think 
this is not just something that we can just segregate to, say, one corner of the Reformation. In fact, we see it really early on when we look at Luther, for example, and his very tense debate and discussions and eventually departure from someone like Karlstadt. Keep in mind that, I mean, this is 1520s, and so this is early on, and Karlstadt is at first so like-minded in many ways. I mean, he is, too, a convert to the Reformation cause, but at the same time, Karlstadt is dissatisfied. We see this, I mean, there's lots of examples, but we see this with his understanding of icons. Listeners may be familiar with the iconoclastic controversy. And Karlstad really is moving and pushing for the destruction of these icons, which doesn't sit well with Luther, not because Luther has in some way returned to Rome, which of course he hasn't, and it's not because Luther doesn't desire reform in the appearance of the church either, especially with its relics or indulgences or, or the icons themselves. But Luther is more concerned that Karlstadt has missed the point. In his eagerness and his zeal, he has created what Luther calls a new legalism, as if he has bound the conscience now to move as quickly as possible to break images. And Luther is really disturbed with this type of radicalism. In fact, at one point, he's so upset that he says this is not the way of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's way is the gospel and faith. It's something that has to transform us and uh, change us so that there is the proper external outward response, not necessarily beginning with the smashing of images, but the, the regeneration of the heart. And Luther, I mean, it's comical now, but at the time, Luther was quite serious when he said, Karlstad has devoured the Holy Spirit feathers and all. (laughs) I mean, this is Luther at his best because Luther is bold enough to say to Karlstad whether or not images remained was, in one sense, a trivial concern. To say otherwise was to be used by the devil himself, and so he loves to Luther says he loves to spruce up such minor matters, thereby drawing the attention of the people so that the truly important matters are neglected. And so Luther, I mean, this may not surprise people because Luther loves to talk about the devil, but Luther says, well, he he doesn't doubt that the devil was using Karlstadt for this type of purpose. I think this is telling. This isn't the only issue, of course, but For Luther, if Karlstad goes so far to violate Christian freedom, and Luther is being a pastor here, right? He's concerned about those with a weaker conscience who are not quite mature and ready enough to see what someone like Luther might see or Karlstad might see. And so he sees it as a failure of pastoral care, but he also sees it as a strategy of the devil because Karlstad is violating Christian freedom making images a matter of primary significance, and all the while neglecting that which is primary, namely the transformation of the heart according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, you know, as you can imagine, this created quite a divide between Karlstadt and Luther. But this is just a test case. When we move forward past the 1520s and we explore different corners of radicalism, Yes, they're not all as radical as every other corner, but we see a similar impulse. So just to take one, one other example, you take someone like Menno Simons. In many ways, he is far more tame <laughs> than some of the revolutionaries that we could point out. At the same time, though, there is a tendency in Menno to be suspicious towards the towards Catholic tradition, and by that I mean Catholic with a little c, the Church Universal. This comes out with his Christology. He would have saved himself much pain if he would have just paid attention to, say, the definition of Chalcedon and the way it so carefully nuances and describes the person of Christ. But instead, Menno seems to invent Christology almost all over again, and it, it brings on some severe criticism, some of which I think are deserved. All that to say, what's behind this? Well, 
I think what's behind it is an understanding of tradition that is not the same as the magisterial reformers. In other words, though there are different degrees of radicalism, they are looking at the past, they're looking at history as if, well, the church has been, best case scenario, quite corrupted and worst case scenario, lost. And therefore, we can't tr- trust tradition. This has let this leads some of them to a biblicism, so that it's not merely a belief in biblical authority, but an approach to the Bible as if what they need can just be read straight off the pa- the pages of the Bible. This proves to be complicated, even for Zwingli, who is you know very much a herald of sola scriptura. In the end, Zwingli eventually realizes, okay, if I just say Sola Scriptura, these radicals radicalize Sola Scriptura into (laughs) Nuda Scriptura as if we don't need the guidance of those biblical exegetes of the past or as if we become the new authorities and we don't even need ecclesiastical or civil authorities over us. And I think in the end, it's not just Luther, it's not just Zwingli, but all of the reformers more or less agree this, this does not represent the Reformation well, and this is not what sola scriptura means, and more importantly, this is going to confuse our opponents as if the Reformation is a type of radicalism itself. Yes, that is exactly the direction I would love to go, even just in this conversation. One of the things that you bring out, whether it's from a figure like Minna Simons or Again, maybe some more, you know, less pacifist, more revolutionary kind of radical reformers is a notion of naive or mere biblicism. Obviously, as you said, it gets Simon's in trouble with his Christology and leads him into some pretty strong disputes with other, even other Anabaptists and in, in even his followers, as you show in the book. But it's not just Minnow Simons that has a, you know, a mere or a naive biblicism within the radical reformers, there's, that shows up pretty prevalently. And it is an interesting conversation because, you know, those of us who are inheritors of the Reformation tradition and the Protestantism that comes out of the Reformation, we do want to champion the Bible. You yourself have written a book on biblical authority, God's Word Alone, which is a great book that defends things like inerrancy and sufficiency and authority and the like. And so I would love to hear you even just, you know, having written a chapter like that where an understanding of the Bible as a authoritative, sufficient book can actually be twisted towards negative ends. So how do we, you know, as inheritors of the Reformation, champion a doctrine of the Reformation like sola scriptura, as we should champion it as Protestants, and yet not fall for a naive or a mere biblicism? Yeah, yeah. I think this question gets right at the heart. It separates the Reformers from the radicals in many respects. So much of what you see take place in the 16th century from, you know, revolutions on the battlefield to the destruction of icons to the way that they begin uh, to approach history and ecclesiastical authority, it all comes back to this issue. And this, you know, you kind of mentioned this, but this really is where so much of what I've been doing converges and so much of what I'm doing in the future converges. This book, The Reformation is Renewal, talks about biblicism in reference to the radicals. I'm also writing a systematic theology at the same time and then the years ahead. And so it forced me in many ways to put down at least some initial points that define what biblicism looked like. And since I was operating in the 16th century looking at some of these radicals, it was easier to do than just uh, looking at our own contemporary scene. Perhaps we should begin there. When we talk about biblical authority, it should not be confused with biblicism. I'm using that word in a negative, in a negative way. The Reformers believed in, the, in biblical authority. They believed that the Bible was their final court of appeal, their norming norm, because the Bible alone is inspired by God and therefore inerrant and sufficient and so on. But that did not mean for them that the Bible is the only authority. Rather, it's the superior authority for those reasons I mentioned. But they were very mindful to heed the authority of, say, well, church polity and ecclesiastical 
councils and creeds, and they even had a taxonomy for these things in which the creeds were put at the top, and from there you worked your way down to, say, the church fathers and so on. All of this, of course, operated under the authority, the magisterial authority of Scripture, but tradition then served as a ministerial authority as well. I think this is important because sometimes when we think of uh, tradition, we can be a bit, well, how do I put it? We can misunderstand the Reformation understanding of tradition. Worst case scenario, we think, well, the Reformation was a debate about with Rome over tradition and scripture, but that's actually not true. It really was a debate over tradition and tra- tradition. And tradition. <laughs> the issue was actually not whether tradition is viable, but what kind of tradition. And so as the Reformers defined tradition, they did not see it as merely say, oh, this is a helpful resource. I think that's sometimes how we today, evangelicals today, look at tradition like, oh, this could be helpful, so we'll use it if we want to. But in the end, that makes us really primary as the judge and discern and the jury. (laughs) Actually, the Reformers didn't think of tradition that way. They thought of tradition not merely as helpful, but as even a source of hermeneutical, a, a type of hermeneutical rule. And this, there's a long story here that goes back to the rule of faith, but it wasn't just a hermeneutical rule, but even with the, the writing of creeds uh, and with ecumenical councils, tradition then provided a source of accountability so that to defy the Nicene Creed was to defy biblical teaching and orthodoxy that the Nicene Creed so well summarized. So it was a type of accountability, even though it was subservient to Scripture, and to depart from it, in their minds, would only prove Rome right when Rome said, well, you are innovators and heretical. If they would have departed from the creeds, well, Rome would have won that conversation in the end. Now, all of that is quite different from what we see in the radicals. Heiko Oberman uses the categories of, you know, T1, T, Tradition 1, Tradition 2, and then Tradition 0, which he uses to describe certain radicals. They're defined by a biblicism, and this is the way I give several markers for biblicism. Number one, it's accompanied by an ahistorical mindset. It tends to have a haughty disregard, even you know what Lewis called a chronological snobbery, for the history of interpretation, the authority of creeds and confessions. I mean, we've all heard in, in some way or form, you know, no, no creed but the Bible. Whether that's said or not, it, the point is it radicalizes sola scriptura into solo scriptura, and it does in the end elevate the individual. A second marker would be an irresponsible proof texting where the Bible is treated as if it's a dictionary or an encyclopedia, and you just have the right proof text, and you just focus on what's explicitly laid down in Scripture. In the end, you fail to deduce doctrines from Scripture by good and necessary consequences, as Reformed and Baptist confessions have said. A third marker would be it's anti-metaphysics in many respects, and so it undervalues the use of philosophy in the service of exegesis or theology, it fails to understand how the study of, say, being should safeguard who God is in, in reference to the creature. And I would even go so far to say it, what happens is there's a conflation of, say, theology and economy. There's lots of disastrous consequences. A fourth marker is what we would call univocal predication. And this is where biblicism assumes language used of God and the text should just be applied to God in a one-to-one fashion. Number five is there's a restrictiveness to revelation. Uh, what do I mean by that? Biblicism, it tends to have a certain suspicion or even dismissiveness towards the various ways God has revealed himself, it limiting itself to, say, the book of Scripture, but then not paying attention to the book of creation. And then last, six, there's an ov- overemphasis on the human author, to the point where it can neglect, ironically, the divine author's intent and ability to transcend any point in history, any particular human author. And then as a result, it struggles to explain the unity of the canon or even Christological fulfillment 
And in that sense, it then doesn't provide a metaphysic that's necessary to explain the attributes of Scripture that, like, like inspiration itself. Now, those are all key markers, but that sixth, that sixth one is especially important because when you look at the way certain radicals are, I mean, it's hard to even imagine, but some of them go so far to really insult the Bible for the sake of elevating the Holy Spirit as if they, as individuals, now have a definitive word to give. Well, that comes out of a biblicism that fails to see what the Bible is, not just in its parts, but as a whole. I think all of this to say, in the end, this is a key dividing line between the radicals and the reformers. And I think to this day, if we do not understand that it's a dividing line, then we risk misinterpreting the Reformation as if it is a radical movement. That, that's very helpful. Those, even those six points of kind of identifying biblicism is a, not just a helpful you know, taxonomy for identifying it within the radicals, meaning the Radical Reformation in the Anabaptists, but even identifying what a miscue of biblical authority might look like today. So, yeah, very much appreciate that answer. We are running out of time, and I want to bring us to a close by bringing up a figure that most people know about historically, but probably haven't read a lot of primary material or even given substantial reflection on, and that is Martin Bootser. One of the things that I enjoyed about your book so far is the desire it stirred in me to read individuals. So, for example, you know, just on a personal level, I, you know, like my, my personality bends itself towards, you know, less polemical, more constructive, as it were. And so even the way you described Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon's relationship, where, <laughs> you know, if Luther was taking down the thing brick by brick, Philip Melanchthon's building the thing brick by brick. Mm-hmm. I just found myself constantly wanting to be like, all right, I need to reread Commonplaces, just because Barrett is making me convinced that I need to read more Melanchthon. <laughs> and another figure you did that with is Martin Bootser. Your treatment of his relationship to the Reformation really kind of had my gear spinning. And one of, the, one of the things you say about him, I think this is an amazing quote. This is page 657 for anyone who's listening and has a book at some point. You say, Bootser has been labeled many things, missionary, ecumenist, biblical scholar, but he deserved one title above all, pastor of the Reformation. Mm. Now that is a title, <laughs> the pastor of the Reformation. That is an amazing title. And I think you demonstrate why that would probably be an appropriate title, given his relationship with Calvin and others. But I would love for you to kind of reflect on him as an individual, that title. And if I could, I know this is, I'm throwing a lot at you. You also, you mentioned at one point a rebuke that he gives of Luther. And this rebuke kind of shows what we've been talking about, you know, the plural reformations, where Martin Bootser says, the Reformation is not a party of one. Or maybe you said that in, in response to what he's saying, but that those two quotes, him being the pastor of the Reformation, and the Reformation is not a party of one, has me wanting to read more of him. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love for you even to close this out, and it's going to end up being a great segue when we pick up next time talking about Calvin, just kind of reflecting to end this episode out, reflecting on Martin Bootser. Well, uh, Ronnie, I mean, thank goodness you mentioned Bootser, because... Uh, you're right. He really is neglected in many ways. I mean, you just look at the mountains of books in any library on Luther or Calvin. Uh, you, would, you would never know that someone like Calvin revered Bootser in a way that was unparalleled to other reformers. There's so many reasons for this. And you're, that description, that he's the pastor of the Reformation, it's not to say that Bootser is not a scholar himself. He certainly is. I mean, how could we read his commentaries and walk away thinking any different? And we should We should also, we can't fail to remember that Bootser, in some ways he has a bit of an advantage with his educational background because here Cal, Calvin, on the one hand, doesn't receive the same degree of theological education as other reformers, 
But Bootser has. And so when Calvin is exiled from Geneva, really fired in many respects, he's essentially fired. And he is taken under Bootser's wing. But this is an opportunity, on the one hand, for Calvin to receive pastoral counsel. There needs to be some maturity with Calvin, and Bootser is the right one to act as Calvin's father in that respect, his spiritual father. But also, Calvin understands that Bootser is a scholar in his own right and has received training that Calvin never did. And this is the case across the Reformation. I mean, Bootser in many ways is trained as a Thomist. That might surprise some listeners who think that Thomism and and the Reformation are completely antithetical to one another. Well, you haven't met Martin Bootser, and you probably haven't met some of the others, like Peter Martin Vermigli and many others. For Bootser, he receives this key training, and it's very different than someone like Luther. Luther is not so much trained in, say, the High Middle Ages or the medieval scholasticism of the High Middle Ages as he is in the late Middle Ages with him and Scotus and Beale. That's another story for another time, but essentially that's important because that infuriates Luther when he realizes he's been misled. Bootser, though, has a different vantage point because he's able to draw from the high Middle Ages and recognize, okay, as reformers, here are areas where we will depart, but here are areas where this Thomistic background of mine can actually come to greater refinement and be used as a catalyst for reformation. So that gives, I think, a bigger intellectual as well as pastoral picture of Bootser. The other thing I want to mention is this. Bootser as a pastor is so key because you're right, he is a type of mediator between some of the reformers. I think, unfortunately, maybe this is one reason he's been neglected. He oftentimes is insulted as if to be a mediator meant he must have compromised, whether that's mediating Mm -hmm. between certain Roman theologians and Reformation theologians, or whether it's mediating between, you know, uh, different corners of the Reformation on, say, the Lord's Supper. Sometimes the assumption is, well, he must have compromised, because how could you do that otherwise? But actually, I would argue that Bootser is quite mature, and he is not so much compromising as he is trying to discern how important is this debate, and whether there can be reconciliation in a way that doesn't compromise either side but actually advances the Reformation cause. Now, as he is mediating, in many ways he is modeling to someone like John Calvin what Reformation could promise, what it could look like one day. Again, we think of Calvin as, you know, this staunch, unmovable theologian of Reformed theology, but we should remember that early on, especially, and even during his middle years, Calvin is traveling a lot because he is attempting to to bring about unity, even a Catholicity to the Reformation that he doesn't see and he wants to see. That's something that in many ways parallels what he sees from Bootser himself. It's hard to know exactly how much Bootser influences Calvin. We don't want to overplay that card. But I think he is a pastor to many reformers in this way. The, other, the last thing I'll mention is this. Bootser doesn't just write theology. He actually writes some pastoral theology as well. His book, Concerning the True Care of Souls, is, if listeners have not read this book, Here's a wonderful entryway into Bootser's pastoral heart. But he says at one point, even in this pastoral book, again, he's thinking about the Reformation and its ecclesiology in terms of Catholicity. And he says about Rome, they accuse us of apostatizing from the church and destroying its discipline and rule, but the fellowship of the Christian church consists not in ceremonies, and outward practices, but in true faith, in obedience to the pure yeah. gospel, and in the right use of the holy sacraments as the Lord has ordained them. I think this is revealing because here we have Bootser, yes, trying to mediate, and yet at the same time, he doesn't want Protestant unity just at any cost. He wants a type of Protestant unity that actually doesn't just bring along Catholicity, but Catholicity is its very heartbeat. In other words, 
he feels the pain and the weight of Rome saying, you have apostatized from the church. And in response, he looks at his fellow reformers in the midst of all their disagreements, and he says, no, actually, we have the true faith. We are obedient to the pure gospel. We do have a right practice of the holy sacraments, and therefore, we are not apostatizing, but we too are participating. We have fellowship with the Christian church, not just of his day, but the Christian church Catholic, the Christian church universal. I think that speaks volumes to Bootser's character. I think it, it sheds light on, on his motives so that we don't you know, Im, Im, imply that his motives are actually quite compromising. And in the end, I think it means more books should be written on Bootser in the end, because here is someone who, in some sense, though not perfectly, he rises above some of those very frustrating debates in an attempt, though he often fails, but in an attempt to preserve the unity of the Reformation around that which is truly central. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that you brought that out in even his relationship with Calvin, among others. And there's obviously a lot more we could talk about with him, with Calvin, especially, you know, even hearing you talk about his role there, when you compare that to someone like Pharrell, who's also in Calvin's life, maybe uh, another exemplar for Calvin in a different direction. There's just so much to explore. So we will end this conversation here and pick up the conversation again with Calvin. You have nearly two whole chapters dedicated to kind of the Reformation and all of those involved in Geneva. And so we will pick up the conversation with Calvin and the Genevan Reformation, maybe look at and talk about some of the confessions and catechisms that come out of Geneva, which would be a helpful thing to talk about. But let me just thank you first for being able to join you on the Credo podcast, which I enjoy so much, but also for this book. It's a lot of work, and I know you've been teaching on the Reformation and Reformation theology as well for a number of years, and saw you taught that seminar even up close in the PhD program there at Midwestern, and so this is the culmination. I know you've probably been writing physically for a couple of years, but it's really the culmination of many years of work and of reflection. So just as a reader, thank you for the work that you've done in this book, and I'm looking forward to finishing the last 200 pages and picking up the conversation with Calvin. I look forward to that next conversation, Ronnie. Always so much joy to to be on with you and talk about the Reformation as renewal. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. Again, listeners, if you haven't, you can order the book. Basically, anywhere books are sold. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. It's from Zondervan, Academic. And uh, one more time, it's called Reformation as Renewal. Thank you for listening. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.